Now, the star belly sneeches had bellies with stars. The plain belly sneeches had none upon thars. Those stars weren't so big. They were really so small. You might think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. But because they had stars, all the star belly sneeches would brag. We're the best kind of sneech on the beaches. With their snoots in the air, they would sniff and they'd snort. We'll have nothing to do with the plain belly sort. And whenever they met some, when they were out walking, they'd hike right on past them without even talking. Then one day, it seems, while the plain belly sneeches were moping and doping alone on the beaches, just sitting there, wishing their bellies had stars, a stranger popped up in the strangest of cars. My friends, he announced in a voice clear and keen, my name is Sylvester McMonkey McBean, and I've heard of your troubles, I've heard you're unhappy, but I can fix that, I'm the fix-it-up chappy. I've come here to help you, I have what you need, and my prices are low, and I work at great speed, and my work is 100% guaranteed. Then quickly, Sylvester McMonkey McBean put together a very peculiar machine, and he said, You want stars like a star belly sneech? My friends, you can have them for three dollars each. Then when every last cent of their money was spent, the fix-it-up chappy packed up, and he went. And he laughed as he drove in his car up the beach. They never will learn, no, you can't teach a sneech. But McBean was quite wrong, I'm quite happy to say, that the sneeches got really quite smart on that day. The day they decided that sneeches are sneeches, and no kind of sneech is the best on the beaches. That day, all the sneeches forgot about stars, and whether they had one or not upon thars. Excerpts from the Sneeches by Dr. Seuss As humans, we desire to know we belong, and sometimes we do so in ways that are wrong. It's not always our fault, though. We do try our best. Some just look to gain, with no care for the rest. They use our core needs to fill their pockets with cash, make a name for themselves, and then leave in a flash. Or even worse still, their success prompts them to stay. Only when they are caught will they be forced away. But others there are who desire to share, who want to do good, and who show it with care. They trust in their mission, what they say and do match, and to such honest sharers the rest of us latch. These ones, some would say, always start with their why. In fact, there's a book by this one Simon guy that expands on those leading with purpose and sooth. And we're here to discuss it in my recording booth. Put your thinking caps on so we may contemplate Simon's Start With Why book and then give it a rate. Please join in our quest of thoughts new and uncharted for our team's first book chat. Okay, let's get started. All right, all right. I know it wasn't quite the ingenious Dr. Seuss, but I thought it would be fun to give it a whirl. Fair warning, we had to record this over Zoom instead of the home studio because it's having some work done, so we apologize if it's difficult to hear with the audio quality. The studio's almost done, and we can't wait for all of the benefits this will give us. In the meantime, here's our chat on Start With Why with the whole team. Hope you enjoy. Welcome back, thinkers. I'm your host, Nate LeBlanc, and it's great to be back on the mic and with you today. 
This time, it's with the whole team for our first discussion of our Ideas to Inspire book club. And we decided to start off with Simon Sinek's first book, Start With Why. I'm joined today by Daniel Jacob Eisen, a.k.a. Jake DeLion. How are you doing today, Jake? Why is that still a thing? That's your contact for multiple people in the St. Louis area now. <laughs> because this you is real. probably forced them to. Anyway, I did no uh, such thing. You can't get away from this. Doing good, doing good. Had a, had a great couple of days with Peter in Cleveland. Uh, then he lent me a Superman cape and I drove the, the Doorward Mobile back to St. Louis. So feeling good. Also with us today, Mr. Peter Costanzo. How you doing, Pete? Doing great. Uh, doing great. Had a great weekend with Dan, as, as he mentioned, and um, I'm really excited to to get this uh, this recording in. I've never been part of a book club before. There's a first time for everything, they say. Yeah, reading books is good for you, Peter. I've heard that. I've heard that. They've been telling me that since the third grade, so um, here we are. And last but not least, Mr. Stephen Eit. Welcome to the show, Steve. Hey, Nate. Good to be back with you, man. So did you join uh, Jake and Pete in Cleveland, too? I did not. I did not. I stayed home and uh, had a nice, relaxing weekend preparing uh, with reading some books. So what kind of hijinks were you guys up to? I know it wasn't all work stuff. You were probably going out on the town. and uh, There was some out on the townness, uh, but the most unique was when... Pete said, hey, guess who's going to do swimming lessons with Leo this morning? And so next thing you know, I'm at the Goldfish Swim School being instructed by some teenager to literally <laughs> dunk the kid in the water, like this multiple time pushing his head underneath the water to help facilitate his instincts to close his mouth and shut his eyes. This is kind of a terrifying experience, by the way, um, especially... <laughs> But I guess, I guess it was encouraging to look up through the glass where, you know, his parents, Pete and Danielle, are, are, are there with, like, two thumbs up, like, yeah, like, just do it. Push his head underwater. <laughs> You're not a monster. <laughs> it was, that was, a, that was a, a, a funny moment for us because we were standing there, as Dan said, on the other side of the glass, giving him the double thumbs up. Like we totally didn't brief him on any of this. <laughs> he's got this panic look on his face and he's like, am I really supposed to do this? We do it every weekend. <laughs> Are you sure you guys do it every weekend or was there a syllabus and you knew this one was coming up and you thought, yeah, yeah, hey, you know what? We're going to give this one to Dan. Oh, literally every Saturday, his head goes underwater. It's part of his, you know, learning the mechanics of swimming. And like Dan said, holding his breath and, um, popping up out of the water and trying to become aware of where he is, look for the ledge. That's really structured. It's a great class. Um, That's cool. I've, I've even learned some things about swimming that I didn't know. Like you can use your legs too, not just your arms. So I bet you didn't think those were going to be part of your godfather duties. Did you Dan? No, 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 I did not. So I think we'll hop right into it. Now we're going to start with a brief overview of the book talk about a few of the main points and then give our ratings on the book on a one to 10 scale. Uh, and we'll see how it goes. We ready? Let's, Let's do, do it. it. I can open. Okay. So this book, Start With Why by Simon Sinek, it came out when he gave his first TED Talk. Um, and this was old school TED, like in 2009. 
So we're not talking like the big grand stage in a giant amphitheater. This is a small stage with a red velvet curtain as a backdrop, a microphone that had a wire, and he had a flip chart and marker, uh, no big red TED letters on the side of the presenter. This was when everything was just getting started. And the video has been seen over 67 million times in the last decade plus. Needless to say, it made an impact. And the video talks about a lot of the same stuff that's in the book. Sinek started out by going to law school, uh, but disillusioned with law, he transitioned to a career in advertising at the recommendation of his then girlfriend. As his career progressed, he was, at least by every outwardly measure, successful. However, despite his income and other perks of his job, he wasn't fulfilled by his work. So he began a deep dive into motivation and leadership in an attempt to find meaning in his work. And the result was this book, Start With Why, in which he asserts that people and organizations that thrive to incorporate their why, which Sinek defines as someone's personal mission, their reason for living, into all that they do. He further asserts that when people can communicate and live their mission, they can lead a following of others who have the same why. Starting with why, he says, is the opposite of how most people in businesses do things. In fact, most people in businesses communicate only what they do. They lose their why, or at the very least, have a very hard time sharing what that is with others. So just for a little bit of structure, the book is broken up into six different parts. The first part focuses on a world that doesn't start with why, including the problems and assumptions we make based on poor information and manipulations in personal relationships and in business. And I'll be honest with you, it doesn't seem like a great place. Um, my question for you to kick this off is, do you think that the world he presents in the beginning is an accurate representation? Definitely sounds probably trite to say this, but but yes and no. Some of what he describes is out there. On the other hand, much um, there's many exceptions, you know, to that rule, so to speak. Um, it's it's not that nobody out there has a why or is living their why, but to some extent, I, I do feel like um, there has been a trend, kind of losing sight of some of those things. And, and much of what we discussed on the podcast in the past, um, the great resignation, right? Problems with these corporations um, that uh, these are manifestations uh, of some of the things that he's highlighting, some of the trends, some of the some of that picture that he painted for us. Yeah, I, I, I think people have their whys, but again, a lot of people lose track of that why, and it's um, not always easy to wake up every day and, you know, reiterate it, which I think Simon Sinek really makes the point of, like, this is why it's really important for leaders to help orient their teams on their whys. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, what he was talking about there, because at the time that he wrote the book, uh, maybe he knew this, you know, maybe he just had a lot of great foresight. But I think, as Dan mentioned, it's been trending, like, more into the why component missing. You know, if we take a look at from when that book was published, to today, there's of course there's still people living out there. Why? Um, but we see a lot of folks not doing that. So I, I just thought that that was that was interesting that it's become more relevant today, based on what we see. The definition of success hasn't really changed from that 
point in time where he was coming out with this. Mm-hmm. So to some extent, you know, people are still focused on, you know, material consumption, achieving specific goals of, you know, quote unquote success. Uh, and, and I think with that mindset, mindset, <laughs> I think with that mindset, it's very easy to lose track of a why. Yeah, because they're just purely focused on, like you said, achieving the goal just to achieve the goal. They may not even be thinking of the reason why they're, why that goal exists in the first place. This goes back to what we previously talked about with, with the resolutions um, many moons ago, right? Um, this kind of ties into that a little bit. Why are you doing this? Does it have a connection to your being? Yeah, I, I think a good you know, jump off point here is, uh, you know, door word rule number 1,221, mindsight, have a vision for your future. Ooh, I like that. That's That's going to be the title of your book, Jake. Mindsight, how to turn misspeak into a best-selling novel. Uh, Yeah, and I think that's when you start to fall into the, let's shove the square peg into a round hole because you're so focused on getting the peg into the hole that you're not even stopping to think about if it's the right peg. Going through the motions. Or, or the right size door in the right size door frame, as uh, he talks about in the anecdote of American and Japanese automakers in that part of the book. It was my favorite uh, little story that he had. To give everybody a little bit of context, uh, auto executives from the United States went over to Japan and um, they took a look at the assembly line and they noticed one difference um, in the United States. Uh, there was a man with a rubber mallet standing at the end after the doors were placed on the car and they would tap the door in any spots that didn't fit flush and to try to make that work. Um, and in Japan, uh, the car rolled right off the assembly line. There wasn't that mallet man there. And they asked why there wasn't anybody to make those doors fit at the end. Uh, and the Japanese responded that the, the door was designed to fit from the start. This presents two different ideas. There's the make it fit mentality, uh, where you put time and energy into the tiny adjustments and maybe those hold us back from reaching our full potential or the opposite mentality to design something to fit right away and work the way it's supposed to. Do you think there are other places where we see this approach in business? The mallet man mentality, I'm going to call it. Yeah, sure. All, all the time. Um, I mean, we, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, of companies that are purely focusing on the solution and then just trying to work backwards um, to just make it fit with the, with the customer. Um, I was just thinking about a, a video that I was watching of Steve Jobs really, um, you know, uh, somebody in the audience asked him a question. I can't remember what product it was specifically, but he kind of really pushed back on, you know, this is not the, this is not the way that we want to do things, come up with the solution and then try to work backwards with our rubber mallet. We want to really go the opposite way so that we don't even need it. 
And I'd also like to point out that I have a rubber mallet in my tool chest. And I'm, I'm kind of concerned about that. Oh, the mallet is a useful tool. You use the rubber mallet to put the square peg in the ground when you're hanging up your tent for the party in your backyard. You need that rubber mallet. You know, I think what where I see this show up in my life actually is just the way I approach things. I, I you know, will try to take someone else's perspective and um, try to fit it into me and how I work. Um, but realizing that, you know, that may not be best for myself um, in how to work. Um, I think that's an important thing. So thinking about like the ways people actually, um, what kind of tasks they work on and, you know, where they fit in in an organization and how they can optimize themselves. Um, I think people do that to themselves a lot where they try to hammer their themselves into a position that, you know, maybe it's not actually for them. Glad you brought that up because I think too often the mind goes first to sort of the sales analogy where, you know, where some salesperson is unconcerned whether or not the product is actually, you know, meeting a certain need of a customer. It's just like, you got to buy it and let's, so let's create FOMO. Let's, let's do some price manipulations, which of course Simon talks about in the book. Um, and, and it's not actually thinking about what's the goal of creating this product in the first place. Making me think about the, um, the Southwest example, um, where they really like took the time to have that customer focused approach. They didn't really need a rubber mallet. They, they came up with a great innovation on the low fares travel, um, because they really focused on developing a solution to a problem. And they had so much success because they were so innovative with it that other airlines started to chase after that blindly, right? They didn't really take the time to, to understand why this was so successful. And they were just running after market share at that point, just basically going through the motions and they didn't have the same success. So I think that's a really great example that he outlines in the book of, you know, why it's so important to take that approach because you can't just go out there and say, all right, well, we got to capture some market share. So we're just going to do the same thing without understanding the reasoning and the logic and the drivers behind that. Yeah, I'm really glad you bring that up, Pete, because he ends this section of the book explaining that great leaders and great movements, they understand the value of things we never see. So like Southwest and the way that he uses it throughout the book as an example, he talks about all of their innovations. Um, but I think one of the primary innovations was that they went back to taking care of their people, like their pilots, their stewardesses, their technicians, you know, focusing on their well-being, whereas some of the other airlines that tried this cost-less fares method might not have had that. And so Sinek says that great leaders understand the value of things that we never see. What do you guys think he means by that? Something that comes to mind there is trust. I feel like that's something that's so important in an organization between the, the members of that organization and their 
stakeholders. And that's something that's really, I don't know, it's not, it's not tangible. It's just kind of like love in a way, like you can't quantify it. It's just, it's something that's becomes inherent after some amount of time through, you know, actions, you earning that trust. That was the first thing that popped into my head is like, that's something that's largely important and unfortunately missing today in, in business, um, trust, right. Super important. Totally. I mean, you have two real estate agents with the same like billboard saying number one selling agent in you know, such and such County, but one person goes to work with this one. The other person goes to work with that one because they trust that agent to your point. Like you can't put your hands on it. You can't, it's very intangible. And now I'm kind of forgetting the, the boy, the actual question, but I guess to the point of uh, people not being able to see, because some of these things are happening in the background, but they have like these ripple effects through the, the organization. Um, and you really, you, you're not going to know that this, you know, a small, some small interaction, you know, way down the line that created the trust that created and motivated somebody to, to live out a, you know, a mission of, of service, which ultimately would create an organization like Southwest that wants to, to serve people, wants to create this great experience. I really love that piece of service um, as a leader, especially. So a great leaders understand the value of things we never see. I think what Simon is really talking about here is understanding the person as a whole. And when you start looking at people as holes, you're not dividing them up as, oh, hey, they're just an employee here to make some cash. You're really thinking about what they are outside of work and inside of work. Um, and so I think what Simon dances around actually is really thinking about like, or maybe not dancing, but um, he's trying to at least open us up to self-discovery around Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I think one thing that great leaders really focus on is making sure that everybody has this sense of love and belonging in an organization um, and outside of an organization. It's like teams want a sense of friendship, intimacy, and a sense of connection. Those are these things that are intangible and people want respect. They want um, high self-esteem status and recognitions and great leaders really try to stay in tune with that. Great leaders want each team member to achieve self-actualization, whether that's in the company or outside the company. Um, yeah, I, I think that's really what he means by those values, value of things we never see. And it's really caring about the person as a whole. So you're talking about going beyond the performance evaluation, right? Like a, a great leader understands that that's only like a small fraction of the the whole picture right there's things that happen you know beyond the bottom line and the performance of the the company that truly matter uh, yeah you make a great point there steve looking yeah, at people I, as a whole I, I think that's a great point there too pete like beyond that metric of performance you're you got to see past that right they don't hit their objective but like you see them, how they're grinding and all that. They, they want to put in the work and they're trying to achieve what they can and they're doing their best. So it's like looking past the number. Yeah. And I, I think you can, 
take that and expand it to not just the employee, but also the customer, you know, thinking about the product that you are putting out into the world and being like, all right, how does this actually benefit the customer? Is this going to, like, if you're selling a car, right, is like making it safe or um, for performance specs for your Harley or just whatever it is you're looking for. Does this really fit the customer as a person, not just to sell a car or a bike? How are we designing these things? And um, how does our entire process focus to serve the customer's real need? Right. You're not just thinking about like, this is just a bike. No, you're thinking about how is this person using this bike? Oh, they're using it to get to work. It's one step further. Yeah. Why it's so important to ask questions. It's an important, important part, more misspeaks, important part of the sales process. And that ultimately leads to, you know, product development and innovation is that you need to be asking questions, not just reading the, the sell sheet. Um, you, you need to, and we go, we were going back to earlier uh, in this episode, right? You need to be focused on the, the customer, the stakeholder. They have wants, needs, and desires. We have to uncover that to be able to truly innovate, not just stand there with our rubber mallet whacking away. Hey, that goes to another example from the book talking about Apple's innovation of the iPod and how they transformed the music industry. You had other people developing these MP3 devices and they were like really, you know, promoting the features. Oh, this, you know, has, you know, five megabytes of music or, or whatever. And Apple just said, Hey, thousand songs in your pocket. Like that got out, that got at what people actually wanted. It was like, I want these songs to be able to listen to them anytime that I want. And so they transformed the music industry from that perspective, dividing up, you know, albums, selling individual songs. And those MP3 players that were kind of ignoring and just thinking about, you know, okay, music on the go, they weren't thinking about what, you know, a person, what a, a person wanted from that experience to be able to listen to like their favorite songs. Yeah, I think that's a perfect transition into the second part of the book. So Nick takes all those things that we talked about right now, that rubber mallet mentality and trying to go beyond and think about what our employees need and what our customers need. And he puts that into a graphical concept that he calls the golden circle. And the golden circle is a set of three circles arranged concentrically where the smallest circle, that's the one at the center, is labeled why, the middle circle is labeled how, and the outer circle is labeled as what. Uh, Jake, do you mind explaining what each of those words mean in terms of Synex Golden Circle? So the what is the tangible outcomes of the products and services. It is the the, the results of the, the business, right? What, 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 what is accomplished, you know, kind of very uh, tangibly speaking by the result of using those products or services. 
uh, from on a very like you know physical plane, let's call it. When you move to that inner circle of the how, you're thinking about the actual like um, structures and systems that the business is has used. It's the it's the task that employees are perhaps performing um, to to make those outcomes happen. And then and then that that inner circle, that most inner circle, that why is the one that is 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 harder to see. It's the one that's um, it's so deep inside that circle. I guess that when it becomes very easy for it to be be lost, but it's it's the whole reason why you're doing any of those things in the first place. And and oftentimes, and just to kind of bring back that example from the the iPod, right? The physical product or service that was delivered, that outcome, is a much deeper reason or motivation behind that than the actual what and that why is not oh i need to be able to play this play uh, music on the go right it is when i listen to this song when i'm jogging when i um, am able to share this song with my friend when i'm able to you know pump up the team you know with this song that i have right in my pocket that accomplishes so much more. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Going back to Apple, you know, I think about some of my favorite songs or albums, right? Or, or just my favorite songs in general. Um, maybe there's two or three or four. It's very rare that a whole album just like speaks to me, you know, and I was like, oh, this is great. But it's usually those two or three. I keep going back to those two or three songs when I'm doing my workouts or when, you know, I'm just in a certain mood or state and I'm just like, oh, you know what, we're really going to hit that the spot right now, that one song from this one album, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, those specifics are important to really know human psychology, know what the person is looking for. Really understanding people mm -hmm. as a whole person, like Steve was saying before. Would you say that the way that Apple capitalized on the market and changed it was really not even the technology? Uh, I think Sinek was saying that some of the other brands might have had superior technology, but just in the message itself and the way it was presented. I don't want to say that it's branding or marketing, that's a lot of fluffy stuff, so to speak. But but yes, it wasn't the technology. It was, but to your point, yes, it wasn't the technology. Other companies did have more features. They were there at the market first. They were the first movers. They had been in the business of you know, MP3 or, or similar, you know, industries that in the, in the, in the business of creating, you know, music consumption products, that is not something that Apple was in. Apple was not in the music industry. And so the innovation you could say, Nate was yes, this idea where they just flipped it on its head. It wasn't just, they had a good tagline a thousand songs in your pocket. It was that they they really understood 
and we're willing to set aside kind of preconceived notions of how this space should work and be true to that, be, be firm in the face of, of a music industry that had no motivation to, to split up songs or what have you, but because they, they were firm on, on their understanding of what people actually wanted. We're all in a startup with our company Doorward. Who um, told you that? <laughs> how is Doorward using the why, how, what framework and what's the vision for that company? You want me to take a crack at it first? I see you smiling, so. All right, so from this perspective, there could be like one more layer of like why, why, and that's where I start. So maybe I don't get straight into the what, but um, you know, very simply, you know, the why for a lot of us, like just about everyone is really our family, our friends, our faith and our freedoms. Um, so at the center, I think all of us are really grounded um, from those four perspectives. And the how is really um, improving the home life from the aspect of real estate, which gives us the opportunity to make homes healthy and also opens us up to impacting the economy via businesses. Um, the what is a platform for people to focus on improving their homes, their neighborhoods and community by reducing the friction of connecting, building relationships and transacting. Um, you could go down a another layer and, you know, break down our product a little more, but I think that's at least a decent starting point. What parts of the why, how, what framework are you guys most excited about in regards to Doorward? I think that the, you know, I want to say that the why is the, is the important part. I think for me, when I look at it, um, to make sure that I understand the why that makes the how the exciting part. And I think, you know, like you said, we're the, categorically a startup, right? Um, and the how for us is, it is very fluid um, because we're like continually diving deeper, gathering more details, getting a better understanding on the why portion you know, Steve talked a little bit about the why, why is really like taking a look at the stakeholders and going through this discovery process of what are they, what do they actually need? How can we help them take things a step further? Um, and obviously that's a super important part of the process, but we need to hear from them. So we need to understand their whys, uh, not just our own. Right. And, and we need to figure out how, how those align. That's why the why I'm like Dr. Seuss today is super important, but it makes the how exciting. I understand you, Pete. And, and, and it makes me appreciate the fact that, as we talked about before, like I really wanted to go into economic development, um, you know, working for a city or the state, uh, working on workforce development or something, you know. I didn't, I didn't have any, um, you know, goals. It's kind of the path went this way. All of a sudden you're in real estate. Right. And that, that speaks to your point, right. Where, okay. So what is it? If that wasn't the goal, right. What is this that, that 
that sustains us through the difficulties of, of the startup life, to your point, Nate, right? That sustains us to, to actually be enjoying the how and, and, and be wanting the what. And that is, I guess, to get to that, to that why, right? I really love that part of the framework, Nate, that we could be doing anything. We could be, like, we, we got a, a pretty incredible team, um, myself excluded. Uh, and oh, come on. No, no, no. <laughs> Don't go there. <laughs> we have a pretty incredible team. And we could be working on solving so many different kinds of problems. And, and maybe we will, right? But there's something deeper, right? Um, something more important. And that, and that, that, that golden circle framework that Simon Sinek has like put forward really um, is like a good reminder. It's a good reminder that that's okay. And, and, and actually that's the best route is to, is actually just to remember and, and, and celebrate that why. It doesn't matter otherwise. I guess for me, when I think about that, that larger mission that we have, I was doing a lot of, you know, thought around what that was, you know, um, I kept on coming back to, to three things. First, I'm a real sucker for the underdog every day in any moment, right? It doesn't matter what it is, right? But sorry, Nate, the Rams are not the underdog. And so I was going for the Bengals, you know, I, it wasn't about keeping the state, even though want my brownies to have a good division. It wasn't about the fact that I, I really like Cincinnati uh, for the urban landscape. It was about the fact that the Rams are not the underdog. Uh, and so number one, like. That's your opinion. Didn't change the outcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Rams are a big bad bully, but that's just my perspective from St. Louis. <laughs> that out, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of outnumbered. <laughs> Fair enough. I bleed. They keep changing their colors, so I can't even really say. Some iteration of blue, yellow, and white. There you go. There you go. They don't really know their why, you could say. They're just throwing spaghetti at the wall. I'm sorry. All right. So, um, but I'm a sucker for the underdogs. Second, um, we've talked about this before, but, but win-wins. I'm all about creating win-wins. And I think that both of these kind of speak to my, my third point, which um, I kept on coming back to is, is that I, I still believe in the American dream. And I think about what we're, what we're trying to do, what we're trying to, uh, why, what sustains us through this, this kind of mission that we're on to create a social real estate platform that facilitates all those things that you know S Steve was thinking about is is that we we can like kind of rest easy and we can be excited about it because we know that that these like these what's which at some level are in the weeds right are are working for this like greater cause. Yeah, I I think what excites me the most is actually the what like why I think that is because when we've had our why 
pretty down packed from the get go. Um, the how of like the platform and like what we're doing um, has become clear. And right now I'm excited for like how that manifests in the what. So I think I'm mostly excited about the what and how that shows up for Doorward. That's probably because you're the nerd, right? Like you're the, you're the tech guy. Like that makes total sense to me. And I love that. Get it, Steve. Fair points. Fair points. I want to push back on that. I mean, Steve is not like just a tech guy. Okay. Come on, Pete. You no, know, I'm more of a monkey. Okay. More of a monkey hitting a computer with a stick, but <laughs> no, no, but I want to push back on it for like a different reason, Pete, that you thought it made sense. I think you're enjoying the what, Steve, because we already had the why and we already, like you said, we had the why set. Like, what does that mean? What does it mean to have the why set? It means that we spend time excavating that and finding that firm foundation, knowing, you know, what we are standing on. And so then, yeah, then we're excited about the what, even in the midst of any kind of difficulties or what have you. Yeah, I'd say that's, you know, honestly, why I came on board, you guys had guidelines set up for the company already. And, you know, you guys enrolled me in the why right from the get go. So, yeah. Solid point, Dan. Thanks for turning my humor into something meaningful. I think that um, the, the biggest challenge that they face is not moving and being patient and getting square on that why. We see a lot of startups that just form and then they just start running, but they don't even know what they're chasing after, right? We see that a lot. There's a lot of examples that we see as you thumb through social media, taking the time to be patient and get firm footing before you push off, right? It's like running a sprint. If you have blocks, you're gonna get a much better start than the person that is out there just running in flip-flops with no starting blocks, vastly different outcome, right? Uh, Usain so, Bolt would still win. <laughs> yeah, I okay, there's exceptions to the rule, um, but I don't know. I think I could take him if I had cleats and blocks and he was in flip-flops. Right, right. It's interesting that you guys bring up that point of uh, needing to excavate and understand and discern what those starting blocks are. Sinek says that that's actually something that's very difficult to do and why a lot of people and organizations have trouble with getting something off the ground or making real big movements is because that thinking process, that communication is really difficult. Uh, and he ties it into biology. And with my limited medical training, it makes sense. Um, so when we think about our brains and the way that they developed, we have our like brainstem region. That's like the oldest part of our brain. And when we look at some more primitive life forms, like say uh, a sea cucumber or something, like they have very simple nervous systems where it's just a couple of cells that are communicating back and forth. And they have all of their processes for basic living, you know, search for food, defend themselves, et cetera. But as the brain developed, we started tacking on more and more functions till eventually we have this wonderful neocortex. If you're looking at a picture of the brain, that's the one that's all folded up with the sulci and the gyri in it. And all of those cells 
are involved in higher level processing. So like communication and motivation, thought process, those kinds of things. But what Sinek says and, and what I agree with based off of my medical experience is that those kind of more primitive feelings, drives inside of us can be really difficult to communicate. For just a little bit of an example, I spent some time in a post-anesthesia care unit watching people wake up from surgery. Disclaimer, I'm no expert on anesthesia, but I've had anesthesiologists tell me we really don't know how it works. Um, we just know that it does work and what administering certain doses of gases or liquid medicines will do, uh, but we still don't exactly know how. But when people are waking up, you see their emotion right away. Like it's that early brainstem piece waking up first. And so we see people that cry. We see people that laugh. We see people that are just like cowering in fear. We see people that are wake up and they start swinging, like all their aggression comes out. And oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, where we're just like having to hold down their arms and they're super strong because they don't have any higher functioning processing yet kicking in and restraining those tendencies and being able to think outside of that just basic state. And um, what Sinek says is that the brain kind of maps onto the circle. We have our, our why in the center, that brainstem. It's just like, hey, I got to get food. I got to sleep. I got to watch out for myself. And then once we tack things on, those hows, those whats that characterize who we are as a complex human being, that's when that really shines through. And it's hard to communicate those kind of innate things within us. Totally. I, I love the, thanks for the biology lesson, Nate. Uh, but I, I love the expression deeper than words because it gets that, that, that point of sometimes it's very hard to communicate even why we do something. And, and it gets into this, into, into the book, right? Um, and, and even how like, companies will like go to their customers and like try to do like these, these focus groups and these, these customer surveys so they can like replicate the success, but they're not even getting the information that they want. Maybe they're getting some data, but it could be even wrong because these people are trying to rationalize decisions that they made in a much deeper part of their brain. And, and it's fascinating to think about how true that is. And then, of course, then, you know, because that process is, is difficult, the importance of doing that as a startup, as a corporation, to do that work excavating, or like we talked about before, you brought up this analogy, Steve, of like the, you know, the block of marble that, you know, we're chipping away to, to, to find the, the sculpture inside. Oh, yeah. Steve's a real Michelangelo. Literally a Vitruvian man. I paint what I can. When was the last time you painted? Oh dear. <laughs> Ceramics class, maybe. <laughs> cool. Do we need a doorward paint day? Is that what I'm hearing? Finger painting. With Maestro Leo? Maestro Leonardo. Ooh. Yeah, he's he's paving the way. He actually got a little art project started 
So for the purposes of this discussion, I'm going to lump the next couple parts of the book together because I think they all have a common theme of what makes a good leader. And one of the core traits of a leader is being able to inspire the growth of trust between everyone involved. Simon asserts that trust is developed when we sense a person or organization is driven by things other than self-gain. Do you guys agree with that statement? 100%. And you're making me think of that little video of Pete that we dropped on LinkedIn a number of months ago. It was like a, like a I don't know, 30 second like quote from one of the previous Doorward Thinking episodes that we just happened to record. And all these people, and sorry, Pete, to like put you like in the spotlight here for a sec, but, but all these people like that he's worked with like across the globe from his team Wendy days are like commenting on this thing because they trust Peter and they were, and that speaks to the times that he went the extra mile to solve their problems to be proactive in solving those problems, you know, looking at the manufacturing, looking at some, you know, thing with shipping and we're like, oh, Pete's got us. So did you, if you want to think about like a leader, like the question of like, what is leadership? And it's that those people, right? Even though, you know, Pete wasn't like in like a leadership position, so to speak, with some kind of title or all these like, you know, authorities, right? It's like, like, oh, I trust Peter. And therefore, when we drop like a random video of Peter on LinkedIn, even though it's a great sentiment, all these people are following him, following that sentiment, great a movement, Peter. I appreciate that, Dan. Thank you for uh, reminding me of that. I was, um, wow, that was at the beginning of the, the podcast life cycle here at Doorward Thinking. Yeah, Dan, Dan brings up a, a good point at the expense of my own embarrassment. It's the start of the presidential campaign for Costanzo 2028. Not presidential. I got to start local first, take care of my city, and then we'll go from there. This trust is really important, Sinek says, in establishing culture. Um, so, you know, once you trust the people that you're working with, you can start to build some things together that are for the benefit of the team and for everyone else in your immediate area people tend to fit in in different cultures. Not that any culture is particularly good or bad or better than the other one per se on space value, but that there are some cultures, identities, some movements that some people just naturally seem to fit into and that others struggle to fit into. What do you think about that? How has that been in your experience? I mean, I definitely agree with that. And I, I, I've heard a definition of culture as a hierarchy of values that a group of people agree on. And I think that is very close to what Simon Sinek kind of lays out in the book when he talks about that aspect. When I met Steve uh, through a mutual friend, we discovered like we, we had like this shared set of core values. And you think about like, who do I want to do this project with? And I was like, yeah, Steve, I want to do this with Steve. And I think that um, I had limited knowledge of the what's and the how's that Steve was capable of. I, I knew that those existed, right? But I didn't actually like experience them myself. And so, so it was really awesome. And Steve really invested in this with me, like building that trust together and and we, we 
we still do it. I mean, the road trips and the, the hikes. And, and so I think uh, Steve implicitly understood something that I'm still learning, which is how do we form a culture? Yeah, I don't think I understood it, but I, I, I knew, knew that that was there. And that's why we really connected was our wise just in life, not like doorward, just, just our wise in life really connected in that we tend to that a lot. We try to actually, we purposely bring these things up and we expand our minds around those things. And we continually engage in that. Um, and I think that continually builds another level of trust that, you know, you don't think is possible. I, I would say, but there's like a higher level of trust such that, um, it's almost like we're already protected and you feel safe and secure. Um, you feel like there's a sense of belonging. So when you do these excavations um, internally with people, um, yeah, I think that really builds a higher level of trust such that we can move in sync um, a lot easier, a lot smoother. Um, the what's, again, this, this shows up in the what's of what we're trying to build. Right, and, and mistakes of those what's, right? And, and that's okay, kind of like you said. Um, it gives us the ability to, in a sense, move more quickly because we're not afraid of making mistakes in the what's, know, knowing that if the, the why is right, especially like our shared why, full speed ahead, even if that means sometimes we trip and stumble. Yeah, or have disagreements. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Th those disagreements yeah. aren't at core values. Those, those disagreements are just at the what level or at the how level. That's an awesome point, Steve. In fact, that we, like we can have those disagreements. We can get into some hot debates, and uh, you know, kind of be at loggerheads, you know, at a team, knowing that we all want the same things. That's that. I think that's that firm foundation. Yeah, it keeps us from getting so stuck that the real rifts form. It's like, oh, there's no real rift. It's just based on our experiences and our thoughts. We might have a different idea of how it's going to work, but because we have that initial bond of trust in the why, it's really easy to take a few minutes, think about it, and it's like, all right, all right, all right, let's hear each other out and figure out the best course of action. And it's hardly ever really a compromise, you know? It's more of a shared discovery process and learning and excavation from the other person and fitting all of those pieces together into something really wonderful. It's a win-win through and through. It's not like, well, I'm losing something here. So it's a big difference than a lot of negotiating that goes on. Absolutely. Absolutely, Nate. I mean, you're making me think of um, the time when I thought our approach with the Apple App Store was wrong. Um, and... and um, Ah, I was wrong, right? And, and then Nate, you know, I know I give this examples a lot, but but when you told me that my concept for the Doorward Thinking Conference was wrong, and, and and so, but these aren't big compromises because we were able to not have fundamental rifts, but rather benefit from each other's experiences and perspectives, you know, and, and really leverage each other's greatness. That, that we're able to come up with even better thing, not a compromise, but, but, a, but a higher and, and greater good. I think that's a huge benefit to that culture that's founded on trust is that the, the speed changes, right? Without secrecy and like grudges behind 
closed doors, um, when it's just transparency and trust, and we're able to have those discussions about the, the door thinking conference and, um, you know, which is still going to happen, by the way, <laughs> just just new and improved 2.0. And our approach with the Apple store submission for the for the mobile app, you know, these things, like Dan said, they lead to um, even better solutions to problems because we're able to hear each other out. Um, and, and I think we've even joked about it too when we when we get into these these discussions, right? These think tanks, um, like, oh yeah, good fight, haha, <laughs> lol. You know, um, it's not even like that. In fact, it's such the opposite that we're able to laugh at it two three seconds later. That's huge. You can't put value on being able to do that. Just stick and move, and together come up with something even greater, like Dan said. So I think right. that's a huge part of building really strong culture within an organization. Yeah, that, that everything what we're saying here is really about that communication piece. The trust allows us to communicate in ways that other teams just wouldn't. Um, we're able to bring those issues up and know that those issues are not, they're not like a person, right? You, we can separate the idea from the person, but a lot of people and I, I've experienced it in just some places that I work, they aren't able to separate the idea from the person. And some people feel like their ideas are being attacked and they feel like it's them that's being attacked. And we, we really tend to actually try to extrapolate that. Like we have got to separate ideas from people. Like just because they bring up an idea doesn't make them wrong, doesn't make them bad, doesn't make them even right. Wow, beautiful. We become sensitive to our idea being attacked because and this goes back to your point of that sense of belonging, that sense of trust. If that's not there, then yes, you could very well take that criticism or that question about your idea as an attack on your very person or identity. Right. Things need to shift into more of just an analysis um, type of framework. Because like you think of a movie and an actor, those actors sometimes don't want to watch their own movies where it's like, well, why not? Like, if you critique yourself, it's not really a critique. You're like you're just analyzing. Oh, hey, my inflection was off. I should work on my inflections. So you're analyzing rather than just critiquing. And it's something that I think Simon talks about uh, when people inside of organizations feel protected, right? Like I can put my idea out there, but I'm not afraid that there's going to be repercussions because I'm not being personally attacked. My idea might be critiqued and needs to be tweaked to fit what's going on in the world, but this isn't something on my character. And we also talked about the great resignation earlier, and uh, it's something that we've talked about a lot, but do you think that workers feeling a lack of protection is leading to this mass exodus? No, it's robots, Nate. Come on. Oh, I forgot. I forgot. All, always the robots. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there have been cases of disloyalty from companies to their employees, and that seems to be trending upwards, first of all. And, and second of all, yes, like, so one example of this is this uh, friend of a friend hired before they even started the job and, hey, you know, we sent you the laptop in the mail. Could you mail it back? I mean, what are we doing here? And how is that going to create 
an environment where somebody is able to do their best work. And so, yeah, in an employee's market where there's so many people trying to, to hire good talent, why would you stay, first of all, at a place that, that you're not being valued? And aren't you definitely going to go to a place where you feel like you are? Yeah. What does that example that you just gave say to the other members of that, that team and or organization where they're getting for, they're getting hit with an onboarding email saying this person is joining the team. And then what do they follow that up with the JK? He's really not laptops, snail mail back to HQ. What, yeah. I mean, hey, that's onboarding, just onboarding email that says, Hey, this person joins us from this other company you know, read between the lines, they quit their job because they're excited about this new job. And it's just like, no respect for that whole person. Yeah. And if I'm another person that's been employed with that organization, I'm thinking, well, it could be me at any moment for, you know, any reason. If the wind changes direction, I'm gone. That's kind of terrifying. I don't think anybody would want to be a part of something like that. So it is certain points, Sinek says that an organization becomes large enough that a leader can't do all of the personal communication and evangelization of the groups wide to the whole team. Um, like we're talking about huge companies like Apple and Microsoft and everything like that. When this happens, he says that the, the bigger group relies on symbols and their actions to communicate everything about the organization. So like we were saying earlier, just gets too big and it's hard to communicate the why all the time. So we rely on the actions. Um, these symbols, we're talking about things like elephants and donkeys in United States politics, the Tesla T, Amazon smile logos, uh, the Olympic rings, hammer and sickle flags. The thing about this stage is that the group inside the pristine and organized golden circle doesn't decide what these symbols mean anymore. Everything on the outside of the circle decides. And sometimes groups on the outside have different takes. Do you think Simon's right about this? That at a certain point, it's the outside perception that defines what a group is and what a symbol means? I think they they sure do make an effort to do that. But I would, you know, I'm I'm hesitant to say that that's uh that's a good idea. I mean, if you have somebody that's not a part of that, that culture, they're not inside that culture, but they're reviewing a symbol, essentially, you know, what you're talking about, a logo, and then making a decision based on that, that to me seems a little bit dangerous. And if that outside influence starts to impact the inside, then that's, I think that's even more dangerous to answer the question or to, to focus on the point. Um, I think as an organization gets larger, it's super important that all of the internal communication is consistent and clear. And of course, it comes from the top down, but that's why it's important to make sure that as you assign new people to various leadership roles where this message will, um, I don't want to say trickle down, but it'll be broadcast to everybody within the organization. Everybody's on the same page. Um, this goes back to the excavation component that we were talking about earlier. Communication within the org should be very 
consistent streamline. Everybody should have a grasp on that so that you don't have someone on the outside misinterpreting something based on a symbol or a logo or an action. We see a lot of that happening now where, you know, a company does charitable work and, oh my gosh, if somebody posts about it, you know, they're just doing it for, for clout. Well, maybe they just wanted to share with a small group that you know, it meant something to them that they were helping this organization out, a call to action for others to join. But that gets turned upside down in its head somehow. So again, super important to not let those outside influences creep in because they can be dangerous. Yeah, I think what you're talking about is longevity, right? And, and for that reason, I want to point out that you're being in some ways inconsistent, your analysis of that is a little bit inconsistent with your normal uh, modus operandi, Pete. Um, so for example, the Bronco, you always tell us um, how badly Ford just really bun bungled, bumbled the, the, the release of the Bronco. So somebody from the outside the organization should be looking at like the Bronco logo and think, if they're being accurate at this moment in time, that the Bronco symbol represents like the worst rollout of a car in the history of the automotive corporations. But instead, you as an outside person, you know, outside of this company, looking at the longevity, and you're like, no, no, no. The Bronco represents so much more, so much that is not captured by, you know, the bumble of their rollout. Now there are, yes, there are the exceptions, all those people that you're about to talk about, I could tell. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we need a video podcast so people can see these. <laughs> We're splitting hairs here, but he's totally right. The bucking Bronco is like, right? American dream, freedom. It's the Ford logo that was like, yeah, I know that they're going to jack this up pretty bad. So <laughs> you're totally right. You're like spot on. But I just want to make sure that people understand that there's levels yeah, the to it. The distinctions here, the distinctions here. Yeah. And I guess that's to your point of the, the importance of that internal communication, right? That's why, to get back to the original question, Nate, how, how important it is that people are empowered to make decisions, right? Because they know what the ultimate goals are, that everything is not like having to flow up like, a hierarchy of flagpoles to, uh, okay, what are we supposed to do in this situation? No, 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 like, you know what to do, make the decision and go. And on this point, right, they have forums of this where all these people are moaning and complaining and they, they know what's best for Ford, right? But there were also simultaneously people from the inside, no names, that didn't waver, right? tons and tons of naysayers but they were still super proud of what that meant right they're slapping the michigan assembly plant sticker on the windshield like they did not falter and they were just they were showcasing their pride for like we are this is like pure america right here detroit steel coming off the the line and that so that in the internal communication within the that the plant was super strong um, and so great, great, uh, great example there where they didn't let Facebook groups and forums dictate their culture at work. They were still cranking them out. 
I love this example that you brought up. It calls to mind what Sinek calls the celery test. What he means by that is somebody goes into the market and they're, they're picking up their groceries for the week and you are trying to eat healthy and do all kinds of stuff and you take celery and you put it in your cart. Somebody's taking a look at you in your shopping cart and that first like snap judgment might be, it's like, oh, this person got celery. They're probably trying to eat healthy and, and you know, have an, a fit, active lifestyle, right? Versus the most if- inefficient food ever. Actually, I'm pretty sure the science is clear that actually you burn more calories trying to consume celery than you're gaining from the actual celery. It's a you totally do. ridiculous vegetable. I, I mean, but it's which, crunchy which, hair which, filled with water. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the point that celery is really a vehicle with which to get dip into your mouth. Peanut butter and raisins for me. <laughs> Some ants on the log. Yep. Oh man, snack time. Let's get to the playground. But but that's the point, right? Somebody just taking a look and making a snap judgment. They're like they're likely to say that you know somebody is health conscious yeah. versus you know you're bringing in a, a whole lot of you know highly processed foods into your cart. So how do we as a group work on the celery tests? I mean, granted, we're not a huge corporation just yet, but still, even in the initial stages, it really helps to be like, okay, whatever I do, if somebody sees it, what are they going to take from this action? What does this action communicate about who we are? Yeah, that's something that we really have to tend to. Um, I, I really want to say that I, I don't fully agree with Simon, actually, that it's the symbol that's really used to communicate. It's the communication that happens before the symbol. And then you associate that with the symbol. So it's really everything that comes before. So it's all of the actions that we do and the communications that we have that really are the genesis of what we are. Um, and then the, and only then does that symbol get communicated um, as it may be, but it's still really the conversations that people are having behind that we're having. So I may talk to Danny. Danny may go on to have a conversation and he's going to communicate what I communicated, but he's also going to express like how I came across in that moment too. So did I come across as caring and loving um, when I was communicating doorward? And that's what is going to get assigned to doorward. It's all those little actions in that communication. And again, communication is mostly nonverbal. So it's our body, it's our body language and our tonality that make up the majority. And it's how we do that on a one-to-one level that gets distilled and actually passed on. And that creates the movement. The value of things we never see. Bingo. And, And so Steve, what you're saying is that we actually need to look at the whole shopping cart, not just seeing if there's celery in there or not, right? It could be, you know, celery could just be on top covering up potato chips and candy. So we need to look at the whole, the whole picture more, more than just an instance. Well, right. Well, you're tying that celery to an idea, but that idea came before the celery. Right. Right. Um, so the recognition that and I'm thinking now of our own logo, right? That door inside the D that's opening, 
it only presents a feeling of opportunity and optimism because there's already like an implicit like idea of like, oh, like that open door. It's like when you look at our logo, there's like a recognition that, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And when we're trying to communicate, like being understanding of, um, kind of working in cooperation with, and, and being cognizant of like longevity here, there is much more than that symbol, right? There, there's so much more that's, that's building on and, and will carry into the future as well. It looks like we're running out of time a little bit. Uh, this is a fantastic discussion. The last two parts of the book, it's a very short section, but it's concerned about what happens if you lose your why or if you've had trouble never really finding it in the first place. Um, and we can talk about this more in future episodes. Uh, the next one's going to be about just our doorward story, where we're going to go into this a little bit more specifically, and we can use the book. So um, just think about that as a part two of this discussion. Uh, Steve, you said that this was something that was clearly put out and presented to you right off the bat. Is this something that you've thought about for a long time and it just happened to match up? Or was this kind of like an aha moment for you in regards to comparing it to your personal why? I was in the midst of like looking for a new job at the time. Um, and I was very adamant about like looking for a company's why. Um, I wanted to join the right organization. I was very strategic in who I was actually applying to. And so when that really lined up, I mean, it just made sense. So I, I was actively looking for it. And that's when it presented itself. I remember that you wanted to read the business plan, Steve. Uh, but then I, I shared first that, that guidelines document. And then you were like, I don't need to read anything else. I do remember that, yes. That meant something because Steve could go wherever he wanted to go. You know, with his, with his skills, definitely humbling that he was like, all right, let's do this. How was it finding something that matched up with your own personal why, Steve? How was it? Yeah, what did that feel like? I mean, it connected right away. I mean, like, like Dan explained, it, like when he sent it over and I read through it, I'm like, okay, all right, yep, that's it. I mean, it's what I was looking for. It's exactly like my values. It's just like very explicitly my values. I just didn't like exactly like write it down on paper that way. And like when I was looking at other companies, I was looking at their values and all of that and like their mission. I was trying to make it make sense. It wasn't as clearly laid out. And so it was just like a smack, like a bonk to the head. Like, oh, there you go. My eyes are opened. Okay. That's what I wanted. Fantastic. Well, we'll get into well, You know, the other thing that I want to say on that is like, like almost none of it, like everything else that was in there, like didn't matter, like what the compensation was or any of that. I was like, I don't even care. I really don't. Like, this is just what I want, period. And I guess that's some of the stuff that Simon Sinek, you know, lays out in the book is, is ultimately we do rational things if it's something that we want. And every time he talks about the Harley examples in the book, you know, to get kind of drawing that symbol, people are tattooing corporate logos on their bodies and doing a lot of brand evangelization, what that symbol means to them. This is like, in a sense, like you've gotten into an irrational thing. Now, Steve, I'm not trying to say what you did by um, 
coming team doorward was irrational. Please don't ever leave us. But uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but but it, it it's interesting that, that we have like you know the quote unquote like rational. We're so like focused on using like gold scientific language to to justify like behavior. And Simon is you know, ultimately like trying to bring us back to this, like more of a balance. Hate is, is more than what people just say. It's, it's what, what they do. Right. He brings up, uh, MLK a lot. It's like, what is the content of their character? Gosh, I wish we had more time to talk about this. This is fantastic. Um, but now that we've gone through the book, I'm, I'm curious if you could just take a brief minute and talk about what each of you are going to take from this book moving forward. I think what I'm taking away is the absolute importance of us continuing to evangelize our why um, internally and externally. So making sure that it's very clear because it's very easy to communicate like our logo with that message that we're trying to communicate. So being very intentional with everybody and who we are. Um, yeah. Just making sure I really stay true to those values that we hold. I think for me, just what came through is that there's a lot of great reminders on, you know, as we continue to grow as an organization, um, just keep keeping some things at the front of mind um, to preserve the culture that we have as our, you know, right now with our organization small um, and just really thinking about what are the things that we can do to protect that so that others can enjoy what we're experiencing in this moment. Personally, what I'm going to take from this book is that I need to, in my personal life, uh, with different projects and whatever I'm doing, really be intentional about making sure that that why is central to everything that I'm doing. I tend to see things as a blank slate and get really excited and rush. And then maybe some of those actions might not be the best to communicate the project's why or to uh, really evangelize it. So for me, I just want to stay patient and really think things through and make sure that everything is aligned and consistent. Uh, that'll help me significantly, I think. Everything you guys are saying really resonates with my takeaway. Um, in a sense, like the patience that the right customers will come. I, I know at some points, you know, we've been like kind of like a little arm's length um, with some people that wanted to join the platform. And, 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 and this gets at um, you know, that need to be a little bit more upfront in a sense with our why, knowing that the, the people that we actually maybe want on the platform or want on the podcast, right, will come, right, with patience, right? And they'll come because we already have this shared set of values. Do you agree with Sinek and his treatment of all these things? Do you have any points of disagreement? Eight and a half. Oh, I haven't gotten to that part yet. <laughs> he makes a lot of good points, and I think he did not, maybe he didn't foresee some of the, that they would increase in relevance as time went on. Or maybe he did, and he was trying to warn us. Um, I wouldn't say I have any major disagreements, just trying to, you know, read through this with, with an open mind without getting too far into it. I'd just like to acknowledge that, you know, times have changed. So things are a little bit different now than they were when he was writing this book. So, mm -hmm. um, but I think overall, 
95% still very applicable, maybe even more so today than when the book was published. I want to take issue with some disregard for by practical implications, right? In the business. And he gave the example of Walmart at one point. Um, there is uh, the practical like side of money. And at the end of the day, like you have to be able to put a number on something. And, and I don't think that he gave a good enough, maybe this wasn't the scope of the book, but he didn't give a good enough explanation of, of how maybe these things trickle down from that. But overall, love the book. Great food for thought at the very least. I think my critique would be a little bit more diving into who. I think that's an important piece. I think if you dive into not just your customers, thinking about employees and all that, I think a little more dissection of individuality. But, uh, you know, overall, I think it's good. A good starting to think about the whole. What about when? Yeah, we could go there. <laughs> uh, I, I think he that talked about. important. I think he talked about some when. Companies just coming onto the scene at the right spot. Yeah, I I think my, my big critique about it is uh, a lot of repetition seemed to be like, you know, Apple, 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 Southwest, Southwest, Southwest. And there might've been some expansion on each part of the book, but uh, you know, I, I think it would have been cool to see some or hear about a few other companies as well, because it, it did start to feel like we were just being hit with the same thing over and over, but that's just me personally. How about uh, rating the book? This is, I, I've been looking forward to this for a while. It's kind of irrational, but I just have these ideas of when we get like, 10 books in at the end of the year. Uh, we have this like social media post with like, you know, our top books of 2022. Love it. Uh, but one to 10, can we get your number? Give it a solid nine. 8.2. I'm sticking with 8.5. I'd put it at an eight. Great book. He lays it out in a good way. I'd like to see a little bit more and kind of excited to read some of his other titles and see how he expands on it since this was the first one. Get to it. I will. Crack open a great book. All right, gents. Really great having this conversation with you. Uh, I know this is going to keep coming up as we grow as a team. We'll let you get back to living. Appreciate having you all on. Thank you, Nate. See you in the loop. Thanks, Nate. Thank you for joining us today, listeners. Let us know if you like today's show and what improvements we can make for next time by sending us a message at podcast at doorward.com. Our next focus is going to be about the benefits of friendship in business, and we'll be reading The Business of Friendship by Shasta Nelson. Shasta's made a career teaching others about the benefits of friendships at every level, from the personal to the societal. She's appeared on many TV shows, has been interviewed for magazines including Good Housekeeping, Health, and Forbes, and has contributed to the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, and the Washington Post. She even gave a popular talk for TEDx in 2017. Her most recent book, The Business of Friendship, Making the Most of the Relationships Where We Spend Most of Our Time, talks about fostering friendships with our coworkers and how it benefits us both personally and fuels the business. Pick up a copy or listen on audiobook so you'll be ready for the next Ideas to Inspire book club chat. For more Doorward Thinking content from the whole team, check out our blog at doorward.com slash doorwardthinking. For the latest news about the show and Doorward, as well as some special surprises, be sure to follow Doorward on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
And to make sure you don't miss our next episode, subscribe to Doorward Thinking on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify today. Till next time, I'm your host, Nate LeBlanc, encouraging you to find your why and to get back to living. I can't wait to uh, read, start with who.